Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. Today's show features an incredible investigative journalist, Rebecca Burns, who's been doing really great reporting on corporations lobbying against climate change legislation in the United States. Before we get to it, I'd like to encourage you to go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and to make a small donation if you can by hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Also, get onto our mailing list. That way you're notified every time there's a new episode. And like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it be on Spotify or Apple. And also get onto our YouTube channel, The Analysis News. See you in a bit with Rebecca Burns. Joining me now is Rebecca Burns. She's a reporter and investigative journalist at the outlet run by David Sirota called The Lever, which has been doing really great work in the U.S. And I'm really happy that you were able to join me today, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, you've done extensive reporting for The Lever on lobbying against climate change legislation. One of your recent reports was on California's climate crisis double agents. So you're speaking about lobbyists who receive money from towns and counties along the coast of California to help them deal with the cleanup of, you know, coastal disasters and fires and that sort of thing. So they're they're getting money to help with the implications of climate change. And at the same time, they're spending money to derail or prevent really important climate legislation from being passed. For sure. Um, You know, so as many of your listeners will know, um, the fossil fuel lobby is a formidable force in blocking climate action, you know, at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, internationally. Um, So I recently highlighted um, some research done by a new climate group called F-minus that's kind of just exposing um, one uh, straightforward but sort of shocking dimension of this, of just how many local governments, school systems, environmental groups even are paying, you know, often with public money, um, the same lobbying firms that are also working for major fossil fuel groups. So uh, the reason we highlighted this in California is, you know, California obviously is um, already Uh, experiencing a lot of effects of the climate crisis, also has kind of been a leader at the state level in passing climate action, is considering at the moment, and this this is the final week of the legislative session there, some really significant climate legislation. Um, So at the same time, you have, you know, fossil fuel groups spending, I think it's like $18 million just so far this year to defeat that legislation. Um, You also have local governments um, employing and, again, paying with public money the very same lobbyists. Um, So some of the examples that we highlighted, for example, um, the county of San Mateo, you know, this is a coastal county, pretty progressive, um, has had to spend a lot of money or communities within it have had to spend a ton of money on seawalls. It's also uh, the plaintiff in a really novel federal lawsuit suing oil companies and attempting to hold them accountable for the financial costs to local governments of dealing with climate change. Um, But at the same time they're doing that, they're sort of hiring the same insider lobbying firm um, that's working for uh, BP and other defendants in this lawsuit. 
Um, So even if they're not lobbying on exactly the same legislation, you can kind of imagine how there's a real conflict of interest here. And um, even, you know, what some people have gone so far as just to describe as like their double agents, um, because they're showing up at the state house, you know, sometimes on behalf of budgetary issues for local governments, um, often kind of mundane things, um, but at the same time. Uh, sort of help helping push through or defeat the types of bills that are going to ensure, um, you know, that these local governments are going to be continued to just be clobbered by the costs um, of, um, you know, adapting and in some cases not being able to adapt to uh, the climate crisis as it intensifies. Yeah, I mean, one of these lobbyist groups, I think they're called Political Solutions LLC. And as you said, like they were uh, they received money from San Mateo County, which is just south of San Francisco to, you know, to lobby on. I think it was like child welfare issues as well as budgetary issues. And and I'm wondering, you know, when these companies are, are pressed, what is their response? Like, do they say, you know, there's no conflict of interest here? Are they hiding certain things or is it just a clear case of this money just being circulated and essentially laundered? Yeah, I mean, it's it's out there in the open. Um, You know, they're not breaking. There are pretty, as we all know, pretty scant regulations governing what lobbyists can and can't do. So they have to report it. But it's not like, you know, a law firm or something where you wouldn't necessarily take um, clients whose interests are diametrically opposed. Like that's a, a fairly routine thing to do in the lobbying business. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think I did for this story, reach out to a number of the counties, the Nature Conservancy even had hired, um, uh, you know, a group that's known primarily as a fossil fuel lobbyist. Um, and I think it, it goes partially to sort of being bought into the idea that if you have one of these like insider firms that, you know, can uh, really lean on its relationships in Sacramento, you know, or in, 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 in DC or wherever, um, you're going to get a better outcome. Um, and so I think, you know, arguably that's a, a pretty myopic view. Um, if you think about first how much uh, our political system is distorted by, you know, money in politics and and the, the huge influence of lobbyists um, and the fact that, you know, they're literally you're paying someone who in another context is just working um, uh, against your your interests. And one of the things you reported on as well was that some of these lobbyists had direct ties to the governor of the state, uh, Gavin Newsom. And he's also, you know, he's behind a lot of, I guess you would call progressive legislation to try and reach um, net zero by 2045. I mean, we'll get into the net zero thing in a bit because, you know, there are some loopholes there. And if, if companies are not fully disclosing certain emissions, then it really doesn't mean anything. But He's a you know relatively um, liberal Democrat in that sense, but how corrupt are you or how beholden to these corporate interests would you say Gavin Newsom is? Yeah, well, so I'll start with the specific case that you just mentioned. So one of these particular firms, Axiom Advisors, that's very active in California on behalf of both fossil fuel lobbyists, and then again was retained, you know, this year by the Nature Conservancy. Um, uh, was started by sort of um, top advisors to Newsom, both when he was lieutenant governor and governor. So clearly they're sort of trading on, um, uh, you know, their their knowledge and their relationships. Um, Gavin Newsom, you know, I think people do give a lot of credit in, in its last legislative session. California has 
passed some some pretty significant climate legislation. There's also been a lot of backtracking this year, sort of in terms of of the um, uh, the spending that was committed to. Um, and Newsom has is, is really been pretty silent on um, all of the major climate legislation this year. Um, there's even uh, a bill um, that has to do with uh, cleaning up abandoned oil wells once they stop being productive that his finance department has opposed. Um, so I think right now we're sort of in a situation where, you know, he's sort of out burnishing what looks like his uh, credentials for a potential presidential run. But I think of a lot of environmental groups in the state are very frustrated that he's just sort of MIA, you know, in particular on some really significant climate legislation this session. Yeah, and I think last year there was um, some federal legislation or draft legislation which would force companies to disclose all of their emissions. So not just the scope one and two emissions, but scope three emissions, which are, you know, the downstream emissions, what emissions are being produced um, as a result of the production and consumption of, you know, their activities, essentially. Um, And I think there was a lot of lobbying against that legislation, particularly by, you know, asset managers like BlackRock. Uh, But in California, I think something similar has been happening as well. And you've reported on how the there's also corporate lobbyism and lobbyists fighting to derail this sort of reg- uh, le- legislation in California. So why don't we, why don't we speak about that? Sure. Well, let me just start by giving folks just a quick idea of you know when we say scope one, scope two, scope three, what this means and what the importance is. So in all these situations, we're talking really just about companies having to fully disclose and report their contributions to climate change. Um, So advocates of this type of measure, you know, would readily admit, okay, this is really just the first step um, of a lot more action that's needed. But so that we have a full picture um, of where sort of the most carbon intensive um, segments of our our economy on so we can sort of really focus on efficient and rapid decarbonization. Um, So if you've heard in the last couple of years in particular you know, let's take Exxon, for example, has like a net zero commitment or there's increasingly I think most of the major oil companies at this at this time, you know, have sort of uh, um, uh, a net zero uh, goal or sometimes they'll say net zero aspiration um, to be a little more equivocal. Um, And there's sort of a sleight of hand going on there that sounds technical because it involves scope three emissions, but it's really not. So, when we're talking about reporting emissions, there's sort of a, a technical distinction drawn between, um, you know, I'm I'm an oil producer, so at my immediate headquarters, you know, both my corporate headquarters and on-site where, you know, there's either drilling or refining going on, um, I'm maybe not using, you know, I'm I'm even if I'm trying to be energy efficient, you know, my employees are working in my corporate employees are working in offices with energy saving light bulbs. Um, there's there's sort of the uh, the direct emissions that a company would produce and those that have to do with its um, uh, purchase and use of electricity. So that's sort of scope one and scope two. And then there's everything else that has to do with, you know, if you're an oil company, uh, what actually happens when millions of people around the world, you know, and other companies burn your oil? Um, and of course, you know, when you think about it logically, that's where 
the bulk of an oil company's contributions to climate change is coming from is from those, you know, downstream emissions. Um, the same goes for, you know, banks and asset managers like BlackRock, you know, okay, you've reduced the number of flights that your corporate employees are taking, you know, you didn't send as many people to Davos or something. Um, but if you're funding fossil fuel projects, um, then of course, you're still having an enormous contribution to climate change. Um, so the discussion around um, scope three reporting is about those sort of indirect emissions that for, you know, many sectors of the economy is where like 90 percent of or more of their contributions to climate change are coming from. And because, you know, it's it's sort of harder and harder to be an outright climate denier if you're a corporation, when we hear sort of net zero pledges, particularly from oil and gas giants, a lot of time they've done just sort of an accounting sleight of hand where they're saying like, OK, we're counting, you know, our electricity use and what's in our buildings, but we're, we're not really going to worry about, you know, what actually happens when people use the product that we're manufacturing. That's that's outside of the scope. I'm actually not really aware of any cases in the U.S. Um, or any states rather who have successfully adopted this sort of legislation. Is this something that's really new? Or are there any states that have the sort of disclosure legislation in place? Yeah. So California, um, and let me just go back to your previous question. Um, so California would be uh, the first state to pass this type of legislation. So there are federal rules proposed by the Securities and Exchange Commission that are pending. Um, they've been delayed. It seems pretty likely that they'd be watered down to include less of this scope three disclosure, which is sort of what we really care about if we care about figuring out how to, you know, efficiently and rapidly reduce emissions. Um, so California's legislation in some ways is a complement to that, but in pretty important ways actually goes further. It applies to all companies, all large companies over a certain revenue threshold doing business in the state, which because California's economy is so large, you know, effectively is like all all large companies um, uh, doing business in the U.S. Um, and it also applies not just to publicly traded companies, which is what, um, you know, this federal agency has jurisdiction over, but just all large companies. Um, it also makes those scope three um, emissions mandatory. So effectively, you know, we'll see what happens this week. Um, some of the reporting timelines, as the bill has been amended, have been pushed out a little further. Um, but it still would be a really significant step, again, in just this, unfortunately, sort of really basic step one, get the full picture of uh, what emissions uh, look like and sort of where, you know, corporations really should be coming under pressure to reduce them quickly. If, if that passes in California... Um, that effectively sets, um, you know, a new national standard. And would you say that this push to have this sort of legislation also goes hand in hand with some of the other efforts in certain states to essentially disclose uh, where pension funds are putting their money? So if they're, um, you know, trying to ensure that they're not funding fossil fuel companies or that, that these pension funds are not invested in these fossil fuel companies? Yeah. So California did also have a, um, a pension fund divestment bill that that stalled. It was also um, uh, coming coming up against a really fierce lobbying campaign um, from oil and gas, also from some of the pension you know, managers themselves didn't want to take this step. Um, uh, so so, yeah, I'd say both of these are 
you know, in in some ways, modest types of measures compared to the scale of action that's required, but sort of really important, like, um, I guess, almost the low hanging fruit of, of um, you know, what we can really do with existing tools um, to sort of, um, you know, understand um, the full picture of climate emissions and then also move, you know, one of the biggest sources of uh, capital going going often into uh, fossil fuel funding, which is workers' retirement savings. Well, I'm sure people who read the lever are you know really into environmental issues and are aware of Stephen Donziger's case. So Stephen Donziger is a human rights lawyer who was representing indigenous people in Ecuador, you know, fighting um, Chevron because Chevron was releasing uh, toxic um, oil spills on indigenous land and the Supreme Court of Ecuador was able to successfully um, convict Chevron. They unfortunately weren't able to actually get, you know, any damages paid out. But something, you know, a really bizarre legal twist happened in in New York where the uh, New York judge appointed a prosecutor backed by a law firm, which was also which also had ties with Chevron. So it was essentially like a corporate case against Stephen Donziger. And just for a misdemeanor, he was forced to stay at home under house arrest for over a year. And this case really, I mean, it's quite scary. It sets a really scary dystopian precedent of the prospect of corporations going after lawyers and corporations actually having their own court to prosecute activists or, or lawyers. And you've done some reporting on going on in Texas with um, Governor Greg Abbott having business courts there. I was wondering if there are any similarities in Stephen Donziger's case or if uh, Greg Abbott is doing something completely different. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely a broad similarity there, which, as you just noted, is, um, I think, a very valid concern about um, uh, court system. You know, <laughs> we all know sort of the Supreme Court, it's it's far from a, a neutral arbiter of justice. But I think when you get to, you know, in this case, state courts, they're sort of um, justices there are sort of often off operating sort of even further outside the public eye. Um, so the Texas bill um, creating specialized business courts that did pass in the spring, um, supported by basically the whole oil and gas lobby and business community in Texas, um, yeah, would create um, this sort of specialized court system that does exist in other states. Um, what What's unique with the Texas situation is that Governor Abbott, you know, um, among his sort of corporate donors, he's heavily supported also by oil and gas, would have the ability to sort of handpick just, justices who serve on these courts and they would serve two-year terms. Um, and when I spoke to people, sort of the thing there, you know, first of all, just on a basic logistical level, that's that's crazy. That's you don't you don't hear about that of people, you know, justices getting swapped in and out every two years um, that are that are selected um, by an executive branch official um, because he has the opportunity to replace them, you know, even more frequently than he's running for reelection. So the fear there is, you know, if uh, there's an outcome that you know, what basically one of his donors, one of his corporate donors doesn't like, it's very easy to go and say, you know, hey, I'm tied up in court. Um, you know, if it's an oil company, also just a number of times 
of types of corporate abuses that that opens the door for. Easy for them to go to him and say, you know, I've, you know, I've been donating, we're friends, and yet, you know, this judge, I can't, I can't get the summary judgment I want, you know, or I can't, um, I'm getting my my claim thrown out. Um, so I think definitely, you know, the the overlap there is um, the influence of oil and gas in the judiciary and the ways that that can be sort of weaponized um, against attorneys, against environmental activists, um, you know, against other companies, against uh, landowners who are trying to file uh, fight, um, you know, seizure of their property for pipelines. Um, a lot of sort of different potential um, frightening possibilities there. Yeah, another frightening possibility is what's going on right now in Atlanta, Georgia, with 61 protesters being charged under the RICO laws there for domestic terrorism, for for protesting this massive police training site in Atlanta. And there was a protester who was, I believe, shot with his hands up. Obviously, he he wasn't even armed. Um, It was last year. Um, But, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. There's there's some... (laughs) There are some cases that have been relatively successful, and let's see if they'll if they'll be taken to um, a higher court. But Held versus Montana, for example, in the state of Montana, a, a district court ruled that uh, young people that that the livelihood and health of young people is um, being endangered by the use of fossil fuels, and that states should be held accountable for supporting the use of fossil fuels. Um, so I'm wondering if this is something which encourages you or do you think that this will eventually be overturned if this goes to the state level and if the state court of Montana will have to rule in accordance with its own constitution? Yeah, I think it is encouraging. I think it's surprised sort of the um, uh, the the sort of strength and unequivocal nature of that ruling, I think you know, surprised, happily surprised, sort of even close, close court observers of this type of climate legislation. And I think in other states, you know, that already have that sort of constitutional right to um, to a healthy environment um, uh, or some basis for that in their state constitution, there's a lot of possibility. Um, I won't I won't try and steer us back to the doom and gloom, um, something that was alarming, <laughs> Uh, something that was a, a sort of alarming uh, that that my colleague uh, David Sirota and, and Matthew Cunningham co- covered. Um, there's, um, you know, a, a federal lawsuit, um, a federal youth climate lawsuit um, brought initially under the Obama administration um, uh, that um, is now making its way um, through federal courts again. Um, the Biden administration just filed its response. Uh, I believe it was in June and and sort of their position, which is consistent to what the Obama administration and the Trump administration argued, but is still striking, is that there's no constitutional right to a livable climate. Um, so that's sort of not you can't sue on that basis, um, you know, but certainly it's um, uh, striking and concerning to hear it put so plainly as that. Um, so so we'll see. I think, you know, there's a lot of really creative climate legislation out there and a lot of great thinking about how to to use these types of legal maneuvers to go beyond sort of just making a rhetorical point and actually, um, you know, shape or, or rein in um, state policies that are kind of tipping us further and further, um, uh, you know, in the opposite direction of where we need to be going. 
Well, 10 years ago in Canada, on July 6, 2013, there was a horrible train incident. I was not even aware of this incident, and I'm Canadian, but I guess I just wasn't paying attention at the time living in Europe. And this particular train was carrying crude oil, and I think it derailed and it ended up killing you know, over 47 people in, in a town in Quebec, in Canada. And I was wondering what the effect on legislation was, like if it even influenced U.S. legislation at the time. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because I also wanted to speak to you about some of the reporting that The Lever has done and that you've done on the East Palestine derailment in which a Norfolk, South, uh, sorry, Nor- Norfolk Southern train carrying vinyl chloride uh, derailed in Ohio. And then there was a controlled substance burn in which they you know, released uh, that substance into the air after, and well, I guess the the reason they did that was because there was a risk of the, the the trains exploding or some of the carriages exploding. So they, they had to do that. But one of the causes of the train accident was the reversal of Obama-era brake safety legislation. And it was actually Norfolk Southern, the operator of this train, which had lobbied against that legislation to get it rolled back and reversed. So I wonder if you've seen a continued deterioration or weakening of this sort of safety legislation or if there have been attempts to strengthen it. I think, you know, there's sort of a disheartening trend when we were reporting on East Palestine, which, you know, got a lot of national, in some cases, international attention as a situation just because, you know, you can really sort of imagine in how distressing it is as, you know, a resident of a small town as a first responder to sort of see a chemical cloud and for it to take, you know, days to know even what you were exposed to. And now, you know, thousands of people in a situation where they just don't know what effect it will have on them long term because a lot of this kind of chemical exposure, you know, really takes years before, you know, um, what what the impact on you know you your loved ones your community um is going to be in terms of um uh in terms of long-term health outcomes um so something that was i think distressing as we were look back looking back at situations like i think lac Montique, like you mentioned um other sort of horrific um train disasters is that um you know, there are really more of these types of of calamities uh, than than we often remember. Um, and they tend to sort of follow a pattern where there's a lot of short term attention and then not not a lot changes. Um, so certainly in East Palestine, um, uh, safety legislation was introduced. It's called the Railway Safety Act. Um, uh, there are ways in which it either, you know, doesn't go far enough or has been watered down. My colleague, Julia Rock, has has been uh, reporting on some of the ways that the bill, you know, even since its initial form um, has been weakened a bit. Um, but sort of the, uh, the the big picture there, unfortunately, is it's it's stalled at the moment, despite all of the sort of, you know, both uh, both Democrats and Republicans um, making sort of hay out of the situation in East Palestine. Um, at the moment, um, they don't have the votes to 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 get it passed. Um, so so we'll see what happens there. Um, you know, we also when we were covering East Palestine sort of highlighted a number of the steps that Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg could take. Um there is a pending uh, two-man crew rule. So, you know, sort of infamously, the train that derailed in East Palestine um, was being operated, I think, by two people um, and a trainee, I believe, um, as the railroad industry has pushed to sort of 
you know, slash costs, slash staffing. Um, there's been talk of having these, you know, mile long trains um, operated by just one person. Um, so there is uh, a pending Department of Transportation rule that would require a minimum of two people. That's also kind of been stalled. Um, and, you know, the proposed version um, certainly isn't as strong as a lot of the rail unions would like to see. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think there was a lot of really important attention to that situation. Um, a lot of, um, you know, fixes that rail unions have been fighting for and, and in some cases, um, you know, had important advances and in, in winning more paid sick days um, uh, in, in, you know, raising up issues about the need to invest in both staffing and um, maintenance just in order to have, you know, a safe railway system that, that we all depend on. Um, but uh, yeah, at the moment, I would say, um, you know, rail workers have have um, won a lot more through their organizing than we've sort of seen passed at the legislative level in terms of improvements. I don't want to speculate, but do you think it was really necessary based on the reporting that you've done and the reporting that Julia Rock has done to have the controlled release of those toxins right in East Palestine? Or was it just an instance of, you know, these are people who are, you know, poor white people who are maybe even expendable. We don't really care so much if we have to do a controlled substance release here in the middle of nowhere, basically in Ohio. Or is that just reading too too much into it and being too pessimistic? Yeah, um, I think it's certainly an important question to ask. I personally, um, you know, can't can't speculate. I haven't looked closely at that issue and, and um, whether there's been um, sort of further investigation of it, you know, at the time. Um, uh, chemical and and a few railway safety e- experts expressed concern sort of based on what you just said. You know, I think uh, someone who was interviewed pretty soon after that decision said, you know, we basically nuked a town in order to get the railroad up and running again. Or it, it seems certainly plausible that just sort of um, expediency and, you know, um, uh, getting um, getting getting the line open again um, may have been a concern there. Um, but yeah, in terms of the sort of specific decision making process that went into it, I don't know. That's one of the the National Transportation Safety Board, you know, has um, uh, released some of the preliminary results of its investigation. I think what we and the lever were really focused on was sort of trying not to speculate about, you know, the specifics of this incident that we aren't in a position to know, but say like, hey, these broader um these broader regulatory issues that, you know, perhaps were not the immediate or only cause, but almost certainly contributed. These are things that people have been talking about for decades um, and that, you know, industry has just gotten its way on every single time um, that the issue has been raised. Well, the reporting that the lever has done has been incredibly factual and has, in certain instances, elicited a response from lawmakers. So I think that just shows how important the reporting has been. And so I encourage everyone to support the lever with donations because this sort of recording uh, reporting is really crucial to exposing what's going on and to pressing lawmakers to actually come forward with certain changes. Thank you so much. Yeah, our, our tagline is hold them accountable. Um, yeah, and you can find us at levernews.com. <laughs> Well, thanks, Rebecca Burns. It was great to have you on. And thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. Feel free to go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and donate to the show if you like this content. 
You can also get on our newsletter. That way you're updated every time there's a new episode. And like and subscribe to our show wherever you watch your podcast. See you next time.